executed. I had a really good phone call Monday afternoon from a very close friend. Uh, his name is Chuck Bethel. When I look down at my phone, all it says is Chuck. And I know that's Chuck Bethel. And so I answered with joy. Do you know those calls that you get and you can answer with joy? And then you get calls and you look at them and you think, should I answer that? <laughs> There's just something about a replenishing relationship, right? And Chuck was in town for Independent Bible Church's missions conference. He has been for many years one of the uh, leaders and vice presidents of Appalachian Bible College. And just a short while ago, in fact, he was here presenting his ministry. He is doing theological training in the Middle East in a variety of countries that you read about on the front page of the paper every day. And it's not always safe. It is remarkable how many Christian pastors there are there, how many believers in Christ are there in the Middle East and some of these nation areas. And he goes for two weeks at a time for concentrated theological instruction. So I couldn't meet him Monday afternoon, but we met at Bob Evans Tuesday morning. And as I sat there with my oatmeal and my pecans and lots of brown sugar, that's good food, you know. Um, we uh, had a great time of conversation and Chuck was telling me about some of the pastors that he's met. And he actually had his phone and he was showing me pictures of these dear brothers. And there's a few sisters there as well. And what they're going through. And he began to share with me their stories. He even said after he took some of their pictures, they came up to him immediately afterwards when he saw them. They saw him taking pictures. What are you going to do with those pictures? They were very concerned that those pictures not be spread out or be let out in the open or put online. They did not want to be identified in the country and the city in which they live openly as following Christ. And yet their congregations are there. They're growing in Christ and they're leading strong and they're standing for Christ. Chuck told me a story that really touched my heart. It was about a young pastor who had, had come into the country where he was teaching from another nearby country that ISIS has been taking over. And they have been persecuting the Christians there. And this pastor had stayed and was trying to minister to his congregation. And he had a young daughter. And there was, uh, Chuck told me, a, a, a respiratory illness that was going on and had hospitalized many of the young people and weak he said his daughter got sick. He took her to the hospital, but she died because only the Muslim children were receiving medicine. They were not giving it to Christians. And with a broken heart, that pastor told Chuck that story. There were other stories that the men shared with Chuck about persecution. He said he was standing talking to a group of them, and then they looked at him and they said, So, Dr. Bethel, tell us, how are you being persecuted? Chuck said, I was embarrassed. You see, these dear brothers, Chuck told me, he said, they cannot imagine being a Christian and not being persecuted. It doesn't compute in their minds. And we have indeed enjoyed the luxury of this great experiment that is 200, nearly 250 years old, haven't we? Where founding fathers, based upon the Word of God, not all of them Bible-believing Christians, but believing that this Word had authority, establishing even on our coinage in God we trust, carving into our most important buildings reminders that we have a living God who is a judge over the living and the dead, God-fearing people who enabled us to live in a society where there's been laws that have 
allowed us to meet freely and openly. That is a profound privilege, isn't it? And you know that that is a great exception. And that through the centuries, the blood of the martyrs has soaked the soil. And it began even while Jesus was still in his public earthly ministry. We're moving in Matthew into chapter 14. We have been talking about the parables of chapter 13. And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 14 today. And as we closed out chapter 13, you'll notice there's some verses there that in verse 57, it says that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And that verse 58 and chapter 13 of Matthew, that Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And that it closes out in chapter 13 as Jesus was ministering in these parables that we've looked at in detail. That he ends up leaving his hometown because he was without honor there. They knew exactly who he was. They knew who his brothers and sisters were. They knew who his mother was. They knew who his father was. They couldn't believe that he would would be the Messiah. And they disrespected him. You could stamp on that part of your Bible the word rejected in his hometown. Jesus was rejected. Right there. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah. In their presence from their own hometown. And they paid no attention. Matthew then shifts into chapter 14, and it's our text for today. And he gives us a rather detailed account of the execution of John the Baptist. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but John the Baptist becomes the de facto first martyr of the followers of Christ. That we have recorded for us, at least. We know from historical records, like Fox's Book of Martyrs, for example as well as other extra-biblical accounts that all of the disciples, except in church history, they say perhaps John, all of the twelve were executed for their faith in following Jesus Christ. It occurred to me as I read the next section of our Bible, and that's what we do. We just take the next section that comes here, and we're working our way uh, carefully through the Gospel of Matthew. It occurred to me that this testimony of John the Baptist as he is killed by Herod the Tetrarch, that it becomes a reminder to us that following Jesus Christ can be very expensive. It can even cost your life. And so I thought that it would be good for us to lay a foundation today based upon John's testimony. We're going to pick it up again with some practical instruction next week. And the subtitle is Preparing Ourselves for Persecution. I want us to read our text and then I want us to think about what it means to follow Christ. And I want us to answer the question that you have to think that John must have been asking himself as they sent the executioner into his cell to whack off his head, to put it on a platter, to bring it as as a reward for a girl who did a dance that pleased the king. What a way for this man of God to die. I wonder if John asked himself... Is it really worth it? That's the question I want us to begin to ask ourselves today. Is following Jesus Christ really worth the cost? I recognize that we are very comfortable here in our Christianity. And I want us to receive some instruction towards the end of our message that reminds us that the norm, and even globally the norm today, is that if you follow Christ, you will be persecuted. We have been living... In a a parenthesis, we have been living in an anomaly here in this country that is 
established its governing laws with respect to the Word of God. I think if you're like me, though, you can feel the breeze is chilling. And there is a slight breeze turning into a wind of adversity here in our country. And Christians are beginning to be marginalized. Value systems that are established upon the Word of God are being mocked. The Word of God is being disrespected. And you can just feel the change. Are we ready? I think it's something important for us to think about. Are we ready for persecution? Or are we complacent? Let's read our text today. Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12 is what we'll read, part of 13. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. You're going to see when we look in Mark 6 that Herod the Tetrarch actually believed that John the Baptist was a man of God. What was happening is the the works of Christ was spreading around. And this Herod, the Tetrarch, always wanted to meet Jesus, but Jesus avoided him. Until the very end, he stood before him, before he went to the cross. And so when he heard about these works, Herod thought perhaps that John had been raised from the dead. He was such a man of God. And that's what he was wondering. Then Matthew goes backwards in time and tells us why Herod would say John was raised from the dead. Verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and it pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Can you imagine this? And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He commanded it to be open. Excuse me, let me reread verse 9. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came, John's disciples came, and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. And now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. What an unbelievable word picture we have just read. I want to encourage you and invite you to turn to Luke chapter 3 with me right now. And as we look into God's word here, I want us to first of all scrutinize the ministry of this courageous prophet. If you have your your notes from the bulletin in front of you, uh, you'll notice that Roman numeral 1 in our outline is the courageous prophet. And that is John the Baptist. Let's just remind ourselves of his ministry from Luke's account as well as from Mark's account. And uh, we're in Luke chapter 3. And I want you to see that John was raised up for a very specific purpose. You'll recall this, and this is what John is known for. Uh, You remember that he was born, look at verse, the end of verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. Remember Zechariah the priest? 
who was struck speechless as a, as a, a pledge that he would indeed be the father of John the Baptist because he doubted. He was an old man and his wife Elizabeth was an old woman. And John the Baptist is one of the miraculous births that is given for us in Scripture uh, in the sense of it was an old man and an old woman who are far beyond childbearing years. And there Elizabeth becomes pregnant with John. And that's when you'll recall in Luke chapter 1, when Mary, her cousin, goes to visit her, and she's pregnant with Jesus, that the baby within her womb leapt. John the Baptist leapt within her womb when she saw Mary, who had the presence of the Christ child in her, in her womb. It's an incredible story. John grew up, he lived in the wilderness. You need to picture kind of a, a duck commander kind of guy, you know? A Jeremiah Johnson with sackcloth. He ate locusts and honey. He was a rough man of the wilderness. He was a strong man. I take it that he lived in isolation most of his, much of his life. But God had raised him up for a specific purpose. Let's read about it. It says in verse 4, as it is written in the book, well, in verse 3, and he went into all the region at this right time, right before the public ministry of our Lord, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And that was John's message. It was a message of repentance for sin and it was a message to make straight the way because Messiah was coming. He was the forerunner runner. And the first point of our outline, letter A, is that he was characterized in his ministry by prophetic proclamation. Prophetic proclamation. Just exactly as Isaiah said, John comes out of the wilderness and he uses an analogy that they would have known about from earthly kings. Whenever dignitaries from other countries would come, or if a, if a Herod or a Caesar wanted to come visit a remote part of the country, they would get their everybody all hands on deck and slaves and they would get them and if they would pick up all the rocks out of the roads if a road had a curve in it they would straighten out the road if there was a valley they would knock down the mountaintop and put or the hilltop and put it down in the valley they wanted wide comfortable roads so that this dignitary coming in in his carriage would be most comfortable make the road straight somebody really important's coming they're rebuilding the roads and that's the message that John gives Straighten up the roads, fill in the valleys, cut down the hilltops, take the curves, cut the curves out of the road. Messiah is coming. And he was fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. And he spent his ministry, which was about one year in length. Remember that John was a young man. He's only six months older than our Lord. Our Lord was crucified when he was 33 years old. John the Baptist is, a, is in his early 30s, and he spends about a year proclaiming that Messiah is coming. Prophetic proclamation. I want your eyes to go down in Luke chapter 3, um, down to verse 15. And I want you to see, secondly, letter B, humble clarification. John was a humble man. And he clarifies that he indeed is not the Messiah. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Wow. 
Here the crowd, he's got a crowd, he has disciples, he's baptizing for the repentance of sin, his disciples would be rebaptized in the name of Christ. He had the great privilege in the, in the not too distant future from this time of being the one who baptized our Lord Jesus. What an unusual and remarkable guy he was. He, he makes humble clarification with the crowd that he is not the Messiah. In fact, he's not even worthy to untie his sandals And he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I want you to see also that John's ministry was characterized by by bold exhortation. By bold exhortation. You'll notice if you take the time to look up at verse 7, that there he's preaching to the crowds. This was characteristic of John's ministry, particularly when he looked at the Pharisees. Look at verse 7, and he's preaching to them, and he says, You brood of vipers, you snake den, you. I mean, he was strong. He was bold. And he regularly preached strong. He confronted sin. I want you to notice, let's turn back to Matthew, shall we? I want you to notice that in Matthew 14, we're given the account of the bold exhortation that gets him in trouble with the king. As we look back at our text in Matthew 14, you're going to recognize that Herod really had a soft spot, evidently, or some level of respect for John the Baptist. But it was his wife who wanted John the Baptist dead. And and Herod even, it says in our text, regretted that he made that oath. No doubt he was half drunk when he did it. So let's look at this cowardly king who makes this proclamation and then can't back out of it. Herod the Tetrarch's response. This is kind of interesting Um, I want you to see, first of all, in chapter 14, verses 3 and 4 that we've already read, that there was a personal humiliation that took place in the public ministry of John the Baptist. He confronted the marital status and the legality of Herod's marriage. Now look what it says. For Herod had seized John and bound him, verse 3, back in Matthew 14, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people. And because they held him to be a prophet, he was afraid that they would uprise. So Herodias cannot handle the personal humiliation. As a result of her humiliation and her disgust with John, she convinces Herod the Tetrarch, to implement this fateful incarceration, which leads to John's death. So here John is, about a year into his ministry, he's preaching publicly, this Harry O. Grizzly Adams, proclaiming against the king and his wife and his marital status. It makes the queen so mad. She's not really a queen, but she's the governor's wife, is how you would think of it. And Herod gets so upset that he puts him in jail, and that ends up being a fateful incarceration Um, It's a good time to look at Mark chapter 6 and see what Mark says about this. In Mark's gospel in chapter 6, we recognize that there was a reason that Herod held him in jail. And it was really, I think, in his heart of hearts to kind of keep him alive a little bit longer uh, from the wrath of the queen. And this is interesting. And it's always good to look at the different vantage points of the gospel accounts. And you kind of get the full story that way. I call this his fateful incarceration because he, he never gets out of jail. He's only 30 couple, 33 years old, 30 couple years old. He's only ministered effectively for about a year. And he's already in jail. And he's, 
his limited contact. You remember that it was while this, while he was in prison before his death that he even sent a couple of his disciples to Jesus. Remember we studied that back in Matthew 3 and 4 in that range? He sent his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? You know, part of the reason he did that is because John preached that when Messiah come would come, he had his winnowing fork in his hand and he was going to rain down judgment of fire. And when Messiah comes, all he does is walk around the countryside, healing the sick, the lame, the blind, raising the dead. And he doesn't do anything with the corrupt government. That's one reason why Jesus told the parables that he told. Don't pull the weeds out yet. The angels at the end are going to come and bring the fire judgment. And so John is like, do I have the timing wrong here? What's going on? Are you the Messiah? Because I was expecting the winnowing fork to separate the wheat from the chaff, the righteous from the unrighteous. I was expecting you to burn these sinners. That's what I've been preaching, this, this coming judgment. And now Messiah is a loving, gentle, spiritual king rather than a physical king? Come on. And so John's in prison and he's trying to figure all this out and... And no doubt, he had some, some low times in prison. But notice what it says about Herod, the Tetrarch. Verse 17 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John. Look at this, this is interesting. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Isn't it interesting that Mark tells us that? And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. There was something going on in Herod Tetrarch's conscience or heart of hearts where he knew he knew that he was a sinner and he knew that this righteous man was correct at some level we're back in Matthew chapter 14 uh, let me just explain how this works a little bit for you history buffs um, it might help you to know uh, these names of people a little bit here if you would read in more detail in Luke chapter 3 in Luke's account he, Luke the historian actually unfolds these people's names but it's relatively simple if you just look up here and think for a second let me remind you of a few people that you know about okay there was a wicked Herod king in the Bible that we all know the most and history recounts him as Herod the Great Herod the Great that's in Matthew chapter 2 and he's the one who slaughtered all the Bethlehem babies, the baby boys that were two and under, remember? He's the one that the wise men avoided upon their return when the star led them to the Christ child. He's the one who wanted to kill the Christ child. He was a wicked, bloodthirsty, brutal man. Any man who could just wipe out baby boys like that is very brutal. I can't imagine being the king of a country that kills babies. I just can't picture that. And so he also murdered one of his wives i think her name was miriam he murdered his own sons he had many wives and so herod the great uh he ended up dying and then there's other people that come to power but three of his sons are mentioned in luke's account and and this is where we are by the by 30 years later when jesus and john the baptist are ministering here's the order okay so there's tiberius caesar is in charge of all of the Roman government. Tiberius Caesar, all right? Herod the Great is dead. He's got some sons who have lived, all right? T 
Tiberius Caesar is the one that the Christians in the first century, if they didn't pinch incense to him and say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, they were thrown to the lions. Okay? Under him was a guy, ruling under him, over all of Israel, was a guy named Pilate. You know that name. All right? Under Pilate were three governors. All were the sons of Herod the Great. Okay? They were the descendants of Herod the Great. And if you just think of Israel, the nation, and and many Bible students call it Palestine, but I've been corrected not to call it Palestine. That would be the land of the Philistines. It's Israel, all right? And, And if you think of how it's kind of a long, narrow country, okay, there's a northern region, there was a middle region, and there was a southern region, all right? In the, in the southern region, it was governed by Herod the Great's son that history accounts as Archelaus. Okay? Archelaus was governor, so he wasn't a king. He was Herod Archelaus. In the middle region where John the Baptist and Jesus ministered, it was Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch that's recorded in our um, New Testament as the Tetrarch, that means four parts, History records him as Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. And he was in the middle section, okay? So they were brothers, these governors. And in the northern region was Herod Philip, his his other brother Philip. Philip had a wife up in the north that his brother, Herod Tetrarch, who lived in the middle part that was around John the Baptist and Jesus, Galilee, Judea, that whole area, Evidently at a family reunion or a birthday party or something when they were together, Herod the Tetrarch decided he really, really, really liked Herod Philip's wife, Herodias. And her is odious. But that was a joke. Um, You didn't get it. Uh, Her odious? I don't know. That didn't work well at all. It's the first time I tried it this morning. That was bad. So he really liked Herodias. All right. And Herodias evidently had a daughter with Philip that she brings with her. Now let's reread what we've already read. Okay, so this fateful incarceration takes place because John the Baptist won't keep his mouth shut. He proclaims righteousness. He says if the fruit doesn't bear good fruit, the axe is going to be put to the root and it's going to be burned. You can tell a a good tree by its good fruit and a bad tree by its bad fruit. And Herodias didn't like thinking of herself as a bad tree or bad fruit. But John the Baptist proclaimed the truth no matter what. Um, So back to Matthew 14 and verse 5. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company. And it pleased Herod. So you can picture this big banquet hall, right? And all these political officials and military officials that, that Herod Tetrarch has invited in to impress... As was customary of the day, the men would have a big banquet hall and the ladies would have their own banquet. Oh, they're drinking, they're carrying on, they're feasting, they're based, they're debauched. And Herod decides that that good-looking daughter of his wife Herodias ought to come and dance for him. She does. I take it to be some kind of lewd dance, no doubt sensual in nature. Everybody is well pleased. Pleased. Herod Tetrarch is so pleased with himself in front of all of his buddies that he calls out to her and he makes an oath in front of everyone. I'll give you whatever you want. Just ask for it. She scurries over. Look what it says. Prompted by her mother, verse 8, she scurries over to the women's banquet hall, checks in with her with Herodias, and she says, of course, I have the opportunity of opportunities. My husband keeps protecting this 
this prophet that I can't stand. And so she has the opportunity to call for John the Baptist's head to be put, of all things, on a platter, put in her daughter's hands, and carried into the room. Herod feels the peer pressure. He's just given this oath in front of everybody. There's no way he's going to back up. And that's why I call him a cowardly king. He does the wrong thing, even though he didn't want to, evidently. And so the fateful incarceration ends up with a brutal decapitation. A brutal decapitation. And I think about these guys. I think about these guys in orange jumpsuits. And they're kneeled, they're handcuffed and blindfolded, and they're kneeling. And there's these black-suited ISIS guys with their sharp knives. They're kneeling along a beach. I think to myself, what do you think at a time like that? What do you think? A lot of great men have been at that moment. And John the Baptist, Jesus himself said, was the greatest of all. He reminds us that even the least in his kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. But up until that time, he's the greatest of all prophets, according to Jesus. What is John thinking when he's walking and the executioner comes in his jail cell, grabs him by the hair, has the knife in the hand, and says, Sorry, bud, they want your head on a platter. Do you ask yourself... Is it really worth it at a time like that? Is it really worth it? I'm concerned that we not be a complacent church. You do know that Christians are being martyred around the world. The statistics are really broad and varied. It's difficult to substantiate exactly, precisely what are the most uh, accurate of statistics. So I... I wrote down what I thought were the most conservative that I could find that seemed to be somewhat documented. Right now, every month around the globe, 322 Christians are killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They have identified themselves as Christian and they are killed for it. 322 a month. I don't do math very well, but that's a little over 3,000 every 10 months, right? Some statistics say like in the hundreds of thousands, but it seems unsubstantiated. And it seems if you do that, you have to include civil wars that are going on that aren't really uh, first and foremost uh, um, uh, religious persecution. 214 churches and church properties or properties, 214 a month are being destroyed, bulldozed, wiped out because of their identity with Christian owners. And 772 people every month have some kind of act of violence perpetrated against them. It's a beating, an abduction, a rape, a forced marriage, an arrest. 772 people every month, because they are Christians somewhere in the globe, put up with some kind of an atrocity in the form of persecution because of their identity with Christ. I was thinking last night, I came in late. Our cross really glows brightly on this end of the wall, you know? You've seen it? You can see it down Country Club Road. And I was thinking, Isn't it good? nobody ever shoots at our cross. Nobody's ever come and lit a bonfire below it. Nobody's tried to break into our building. It was left wide open all day yesterday. The doors were even propped open. Nobody messed with us. Nobody messes with our cross. How great is that? 
We loaded up a bunch of kids and Pastor Mark jumped in a van with Bible church written on the side of it and Bible verses referenced on the side of it. And they drove down the turnpikes, Pennsylvania and Ohio, and got on I-96 in Michigan and over across to 131 and went to Grand Rapids and passing all those people and nobody messed with them. They pulled into rest stops and there's Bible verse on their van and nobody messes with them. They just think, oh, there's a bunch of youth group from some church. I'm really thankful for that. My own son got in a van yesterday morning for his senior trip with borrowed church vans from Faith Christian Academy with Bible verses on them, heading down I-95 all day long to Florida and nobody messes with them for being Christian. But we're an anomaly. And dare I say, our day is coming. It has to. You can't keep doing what our leadership is doing and think that the gospel is going to be protected. I don't know how much longer. And so I thought it would be good for us to close out today with just a little bit of biblical information answering the question, what does the Bible teach us about persecution? Couched in this story of John the Baptist's head being carried up on a platter in this brutal decapitation, let's take in a little bit of biblical information and remind ourselves what the Bible says about persecution. Let's go to Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5. It's verses 10 through 12. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. This is the Beatitudes. We're familiar with them, but notice really what he's saying. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you'll notice it, it doesn't bless people who are persecuted for being criminals. There is a place for government to to oppress people who are breaking the law and who are, are not righteous people. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can read further in chapter 10 of Matthew, verses 16 to 25. Jesus talks about the fact that they will turn against you. They will revile you. Matthew 10 talks about it. John 15 talks about it. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. They hate my message of righteousness. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, you can turn there if you want or you can listen. In 2 Timothy chapter 3... Verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul gives specific words concerning this not long before he lost his own head in execution. In 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, verses 12 and 13, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Is it any wonder that the brothers in the Middle East looked at Dr. Bethel and said, So tell us about your persecution. The Apostle Paul couldn't be any clearer, could he? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. That's this room full of people, isn't it? We desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. You will be persecuted. And while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, listen, it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. I'm not fear-mongering. The glass is not half empty. The reality is that the Bible clearly instructs us and teaches us clearly that Christians will be persecuted. Christ was persecuted. They took and nailed Him on a cross. 
Now, they had no idea that they were part of God's sovereign plan. And that great connecting of the dots where a holy God met a sinful world and Jesus was the mediator in between. Jesus Christ alone is the mediator between God and man. And it is there we go to the cross where they nailed him to the cross and he was persecuted. Had his head rammed with thorns, beaten with rods, beaten with a cat of nine tails. Till the flesh hang off, hung off his rib cage. Persecuted because he was what? Because he loved sinners, because he healed the blind, because he raised the dead, because he made the lame to walk. No, because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. You start talking like that, the exclusive message of the gospel, and they start gritting their teeth and hissing. Scary message, isn't it? Come unto me, all you who are laboring and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Scary message, isn't it? Jesus is hated. His followers will be hated. And they took him right to the cross. And yet that was part of God's plan where he alone could fulfill the penalty of the sin of the world that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Wow. That's it. And so the Bible is filled with that instruction. Can I remind you that we have a spiritual obligation as well? We have a spiritual obligation to government. I wanted to take a few minutes, and I think we'll pick up on this next week. And we will remind ourselves. But let me help you fill in the blanks so that you can rest easy. And I know there's a couple of you out there. If you don't fill in those blanks just right, it really bothers you. Some of us never fill in the blanks. When you read Romans chapter 13, Titus chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 2... Keep in mind that 1 Peter was written to believers who were scattered in the dispersion. They were persecuted. They lost their businesses. They lost their homes. They lost their bank accounts. They lost their lives. They lost their loved ones. And Peter writes clearly in no uncertain terms in 1 Peter 2 to obey them. The first thing on the, the, the government that we're taught specifically, and we'll pick this up next week, but number one is to obey Romans 13. Submit to those who are in authority over you. Obey them. If a police officer pulls you over and asks you to get out of the car or show you his license, do it. You obey. You obey. You obey. We, we submit. And I want to remind you that there were lots of godless, ungodly leaders. And the word is never to overthrow in the New Testament. The word is always to just submit to them and obey them. That is what our spiritual obligation is. We're going to talk in more detail about that next week. Romans chapter 13, verse 6 says, To be sure and pay your taxes. So the second thing we need to do is not only do we obey, but we pay. We pay. And then finally, when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we are commanded in no uncertain instruction there. Clear instruction as can be to pray for those who have the rule over you. We should pray for all in power above us. The mayors, the sheriffs, the deputies, the town councils, the planning commission. Especially pray for the planning commission. <laughs> Obey, pay, and pray. You want to know what your response to government is supposed to be? It's to obey. It's to pay. And by the way, the, tax, the taxes were out of control then as well under Nero. And to pray. Are we really letting our light shine as believers in Christ? Now, are we ready for persecution? 
You can ask yourself, is it really worth it when they have one hand in your hair and the other hand on the knife on your throat? Let me end with a story about a beloved pastor and his congregation in North Korea. You know, when you look at the globe today and um, you assess where Christians are persecuted the most, North Korea is one of the, the worst offenders and has been for decades. It's documented. One story that came out of North Korea a few years back was about pastor, a pastor named Kim. Pastor Kim, he only had a congregation of 27 believers. Because of persecution, they had dug a, underground tunnels and were living much of the time underground. For years, Pastor Kim and 27 of his flock of Korean saints had lived in hand-dug tunnels beneath the earth. Then as the communists were building a road, they discovered the Christians living underground. The officials brought them out before a crowd of 30,000 people in the village of Gaksan for a public trial and execution. Pastor Kim and his congregation were told, you deny Christ or you will die. But they refused. At this point, the head communist officer ordered four children from the group seized and had them prepared for hanging. With ropes tied around their small necks, the officer again commanded the parents to deny Christ. Not one of the believers would deny their faith. They told the children, we will soon see you in heaven. The children died quietly. The officer then called for a steamroller to be brought in. He forced the Christians to lie down on the ground in its path. As its engine revved, they were given one last chance to recant their faith in Jesus. Again, they refused. As the steamroller began to inch forward, the Christians began to sing a song that they had often sung together. As their bones and bodies were crushed under the pressure of the massive rollers, their lips uttered the words of the hymn, More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Thee alone I seek. More love to thee. Let sorrow do its work. More love to thee. Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This be my parting cry. My heart shall raise. More love, O Christ, to thee. The execution was reported in the North Korean press as an act of suppressing superstition. Is it worth it? Are we ready? More love to thee, O Christ. Let's stand and just close in prayer. O Father, please convict us of complacency. Thank you for the great testimony of John the Baptist, who never capitulated on his message. He never yielded. Great was his reward. Thank you for the testimony of Pastor Kim and his 27-member congregation. Father, would you encourage us? Father, help us to be loving. Help us to be bold. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be Christ-like. Help us to love our neighbor as ourself. Help us to love you with all our heart, mind, and soul. And help us never, ever to renounce our faith. Show us how to live in these shifting days. Father, keep us from grumbling and keep us from um, bitterness. May we be encouraging people. May we be respectful people. May we pray for those who have authority over us. May we shine as bright lights in a dark, dark day. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.